right. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Mentally Unscripted, the podcast where you listen to a couple of regular people talk about complex ideas and explore them with mental models, new skills, and thinking so you can improve your ways of thinking and come up with better ways to communicate those ideas with your friends and family. As always, I am Paul, and I'm here with uh, Captain Anarchy, Warrior Anarchy, Scott. Scott, how are you today? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I can't complain. It's a nice, cool day in uh, Montana. The weather's finally started to cool off. Are you still experiencing a heat wave? Oh, oh yeah. I uh, was up early this morning to walk the dog, and it was already up in the 80s. Um, so, oh. yeah, we're recording this on, what, uh, July 8th, and it's it's still hot in Denver. So Oh, geez. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. Well, we have no AC in the main part of the house where, where I'm living, and, uh, man, it gets hot at dinner time. Um, I'm I'm really appreciating the old school methods of of using your indoor outdoor dining and, and right. sleeping and everything else that you were supposed to do. Um, I, I miss that. Right. So uh, um, no chili for you guys this time of year. No chili. I think we're just going to be eating ice cubes for the rest of the summer. Um, <laughs> let let so, me know how that goes for weight loss. I, I will. Yeah. Part of, part of my IF program. Um, well, guys, we're super excited to bring the, the guest here, um, Joey, the the thepreneur from um, or psychpreneur from from Twitter, is joining us today. Uh, Scott and I met him, I believe, last summer, and and Scott, I think you guys may be connected early on, and uh, so we've known each other for a while. Met on the great Twitter network, and uh, we were excited to bring him on and talk about uh, just a, a whole variety of topics from. Uh, know the Twitter life to what he's doing with his with his business and exploring why uh, he may dislike some books that uh, are well known in the Twitter verse as, as pure gold. So, so Joey, man, how are you today? I'm doing well. It's good to be talking to you guys. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us. So uh, for those who maybe aren't familiar with your background, you want to give kind of a, a background and, you know, to where where you are today in life? Yeah, for sure. So I'm Joey Dowdy. I go by the name Cypreneur. Back in the day when we first met last year, I was called Improvement Geek, but I rebranded late last year. And I'm a performance coach for entrepreneurs. My methodology and content is largely based on psychology, neuroscience, and physiology. So I am a Improvement Geek, but just going by a different name. All right. And I also have a background in software engineering. So I went to Georgia Tech here in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was a web developer for about two and a half years, but I just left the industry this month. Well, well, congrats. And, and by leaving the industry, you mean that you're now full time doing your performance coaching, correct? Yep. This is my third week of full time entrepreneurship. All right. Nice. Getting at the... Uh, early days before you become, uh, you know, the, the guy who's, who's doing the mega conferences and million plus participants, <laughs> we can yeah. say we knew you win. <laughs> yeah. I see you're building out your office there. Um, you've got to get a nice couple of bookshelves and fill them full of books. So you'll look smart like Paul there. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, I actually have a couple of those narrow tall shelves in my Amazon cart. I'm going to get a couple of those and put some little yeah. Some little plants from Trader Joe's on top of there because I need something else back there. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> a little bowl. You know, I have to tell everybody, I know I'm, I'm, I'm trying to look smart. Most of these books aren't mine. They're my, my father-in-law's who I think he buys about three books a week and just consumes them like a, like an animal. Uh, I do nice. I do like to read, but uh, I'm not sure I'm quite up to his level. So 
Um, well, you know, I, I think there's a lot of topics we want to talk about today. I know we talked about it before, sort of the, um, your, your interest in habits, performance improvement. Um, I, I think that's just a really nice alignment with what we talk about on the show about uh, thinking clearly and having models that you can follow um, and, and building skills to help you just, you know, we talk about a lot about uh, improving thinking and communication, but obviously there's a performance element uh, no matter what you're doing in life. But before we get into that, sort of what was, you mentioned getting a degree um, in computer science and then obviously doing that for kind of the beginning part of your career. When did this um, desire to explore more of the performance space kind of kick in? So you guys have been with me for most of the journey. Uh, you remember last year I was really experimenting with different angles, but the underlying theme was always scientific self-improvement. And it really started in the summer of 2018 during my internship. I was up in Nashville, Tennessee. And for those who don't know me, I've been on a journey of weight loss up and down throughout my life. And I've lost about 170 pounds. And I was like close to my goal around that time, but I wasn't quite there yet. So just on a whim, I started reading a personal development book for the first time, which was Maximum Achievement by Brian Tracy. And there was something in that book, it's probably a platitude, but something in that book just blew my mind and changed my perspective. And so I started reading more of that content and I got kind of addicted to it. But then I got tired of the cliches and nonsense and kind of unhelpful advice. So I started studying the underlying science to better understand how my brain and my body worked so I could improve it. And then around... I'd say spring of 2019, like soon after I started my engineering career, I realized that I could start using what I learned to help other people improve. So that was really the genesis of this whole content creation coaching thing. It started then, you know, a little over two years ago. And it's kind of evolved from there. Like I said, I've, I've gone different routes with it. But I was thinking about the whole like transformational aspect of it. So I'd had a really good conversation with Jack Butcher of uh, for people who don't know him. I highly recommend checking him out. He's amazing. I had a good one-on-one -on -one conversation with him and he was talking about my story and how I should lean on that and go into transformation, but that didn't feel very impactful. And then I realized mm -hmm. that performance was really, I mean, if you, if you improve yourself, you're probably going to improve your performance, right? So being a performance coach in a way is like, uh, like being a targeted life coach almost, mm -hmm. but yeah, it's just something that I've experimented with. I'm still really experimenting with the angle. I mean, not, not so much the angle anymore. I, I feel happy with where I'm at right now. I feel like I've carved out a fairly unique niche for myself, but it's just been a lot of experimentation seeing what resonates with you know my community but also what resonates with myself because you know like i said i just left my job and i don't want to dread logging onto twitter or getting on a call with a client because i don't resonate with what i do so i want to make yeah. sure that i'm happy with what it is because otherwise i just have another job and i'm back to square one so so being consistent in uh, your, right. your desires and delivery yeah yeah. Applying the consistency principle, right? <laughs> yep. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, we um, um we had wisdom and strategy on um a couple episodes ago, and I don't know if you follow him on Twitter, um, but mm-hmm. we were talking about um uh, imposter syndrome. So it sounds yep. like what you're talking about here is you wanted to be you wanted to overcome the imposter syndrome or not have it be as much of a problem before you struck out, um, left your job and struck out on your own as a performance coach. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, it is. Imposter syndrome is honestly something that I've dealt with a lot off and on throughout my life, you know, in college, in my career, in my business. And it's something that I've noticed a lot of people face, you know, including high performers, surprisingly, but even especially high performers. Because the thing is, like, as you improve your performance, as you get to the topper, the, the topper, the top upper, you know, 50, 10, 1% and something, you start seeing kind of the level cap, right? You start seeing the boundaries or maybe you start seeing that there are no boundaries and you start seeing how truly far away you are from this potential that you have. Human potential is a, a subject that I've, I, I love looking into and talking about. Um, so, you know, it, I think it's something that Stephen Pressfield, the author of The War on Art, calls the the curse of taste, I think it is. I may be misrepresenting that, but it's related to that concept where, you know, you are knowledgeable enough about what you're doing so so that you can see how it could be improved. And so you start fearing that other people can see these flaws as well. And so you devalue it in your own mind, but to other people, it's, it's good. It's good stuff, right? Like, so if I write a tweet or write a thread or a newsletter email, I may think like, man, I really could have done better on this. I didn't execute on this well enough. And so I think it sucks, but then people in my community may think that it's awesome, you know? So imposter syndrome is something that can manifest in different ways. And there's nothing wrong with having imposter syndrome. I mean, this is something that most of us do at some point or another. I mean, the original paper about imposter syndrome says that something like 70% of people deal with it at some point in their lives. It's just really about managing it. So do you have uh, specific tactics that you recommend when you're talking to someone who's got the imposter syndrome, like a set of questions, or is it really contextual to what they're going through and the level that they're at? How, how do you approach that with people? One of the keys to, to dealing with it is being realistic about what they've done in the past, like what they have achieved and their skill levels. So our brain has a negativity bias, which back in the old days for our ancestors was a survival advantage, but it's not so helpful for us nowadays. It, it can be kind of a drawback. It, so the survival or the negativity bias is really a learning mechanism that helps us remember like, hey, this bad thing happened. Maybe not. Maybe you shouldn't do that again. So one side effect of that is that we focus so much on our failures and our flaws and the areas that we're lacking in but we don't really pay too much attention to the areas that we're good at we don't pat ourselves on our back on the back for our achievement and we just look for the next thing to do so one of the keys is to 
help people see the good things that they've done and help them acknowledge those things because what that's going to do is going to help them see like, Hey, like, you know, I'm a substantial player in whatever space that I'm in. And that helps them build that confidence or at least helps them quiet those, those little whispers of self doubt. And then another thing that's helpful too, is just giving them the awareness. You know, one of the, one of the things that I love about being a psychology guy is I can explain like why these things are happening. Right. Cause mm. it's so easy to just say like, come on, man, like you're awesome. Like, you know, you've, you've, you've ran a marathon or whatever, like you're a good runner, you're a good athlete. But if you explain to somebody like, okay, look, here's why, here's what's happening in your brain and here's why, and there's nothing wrong with you. It's just something that happens to humans. That awareness alone goes a really long way because then the next time that happens, the person may think, oh yeah, this isn't, this isn't true, right? Like this isn't, this isn't realistic. So then it yeah. doesn't bother them much. It's not as limiting anymore. So, so that actually goes down a little bit of another path that we, you know, in the self-improvement money, Twitter, self-improvement, Twitter, whatever you want to call the space that we're, we're in frequently is this idea of self-awareness, right? That you have mm-hmm. a whole group of people that, that lack that. Is that a, do you agree with the assessment that yes, a lot of people lack that? And if so, you know, again, is there skills that you're kind of trying to help people with to build that into their behavior? Yes, I certainly won't name names, but it doesn't take a lot to see that um, a lack of self-awareness and also a lot of insecurity is rampant in our particular shard of the community. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's it's, if you've ever been in the same room as a psychology textbook, then it's pretty glaringly (laughs) obvious. Um, I am actually the opposite where I've always been self-aware to a fault almost um, or hmm. far overly self-aware. So I overthink things and you, you kind of have to be gentle when helping somebody with self-awareness, because if you make them aware in the wrong ways and you're going to be triggering their psychological defense mechanisms, I know mm-hmm. that triggering is kind of a bastardized word in our modern day, but it's basically what it is. And so, you know, with fitness coaches, who talk about, you know, there's some fitness coaches who make people feel bad for being overweight. Mm -hmm. And the problem with that is that it can be quite disempowering, you know? So if you give somebody the awareness the wrong way, like if you walked up to somebody on the street and you're like, Hey man, you're a fat loser, your heart's struggling, your family's disappointed in you. Do you want to buy my coaching program? It's probably not going to go very well. But if you gently, but have you tried, Joey? Have you tried that method? <laughs> not yet, not yet. Oh, yeah, um, okay. Maybe in the future when I have an overabundance of prospects. But <laughs> there we go. You know, if you guide someone to that self-awareness and help them see things that they may be missing, then that can be a lot more powerful. It's like people generally don't like being talked down to. Right. So if you've heard the phrase, people love to buy, but they hate to be sold to. Mm -hmm. It's a similar thing where people love to learn, but they hate to be taught. 
that's not entirely accurate, but it's similar perspective where it's, it's like, if you, if you feel like I'm talking down to you, like I'm a superior and I'm helping sort you out, you're probably going to be a little bit more resistant to my messaging. Whereas if I present, if I like help guide you to like, I'm walking you, I'm walking with you, I'm helping guide you to this information or maybe this conclusion that I would like you to reach, then that's going to be more effective typically. Right. I, I noticed that with interviewers a lot where it seems like if the if the interviewee doesn't start giving answers to questions that the interviewer wants, it seems like they, they mm-hmm. start to get offended and will start pushing back on the interviewee. Um, so one thing I'm one question I have is I, we see times when that negative approach does work. I'm thinking of um for a while, I was following some of the, the uh, you know fitness gurus, and I'm air quotes around gurus there on Twitter, and there was a lot of um, you know basically you'll never get laid if you don't have 10% body fat. Buy my PDF for 49.99, and all yep. the women will be hanging all over you. Um, so wh- in that instance, why does something like that work? Uh, because because. Yeah, that's a great question. So that's basically, I mean, it's all marketing, really. Right. Um, That's basically, it's playing on pain points, like things that somebody wants. So if you're an overweight 20-something male, you probably want a girlfriend. So if someone tells you, hey, like the reason why you're single is you're overweight, so if you buy my course, then that'll fix that problem and you'll get a girlfriend. Then that's going to be attractive to somebody. So that's not talking down to the person, the prospect as much. Whereas a marketing strategy of you're a loser and you're a weak person, you're a sheep. That's not going to be as effective because that's like insulting the person. Yeah. Right. So right. it's, it's, it's a subtle difference, right? That's but it's really about, Hey, you know, this thing you want, my product will help you get it. Yeah. That's, and that's a key aspect of marketing, like selling anything like performance coaching, like me, or really selling any product. A key to that is saying, okay, person is at point a, they want to get to point B. I am the bridge or my product is the bridge and present it as the bridge. Yeah. Well, that, that's, and good. that gets into like feature or benefits over features and all that other marketing stuff. Right. But really it's, it's so important to play on what the person really wants. And for a lot of people that's social status or something related to, to social things, because we're tribal creatures. You know, we want to keep our tribe safe. We want to maintain or elevate our own social status, which is why, you know, Lamborghinis and Rolexes, like they don't even have to have EV commercials. So if you start playing on these things and presenting your product or service as the bridge to go from where it takes someone from where they are now to where they want to go, that's going to be so much more effective. But if you take the opposite approach and make someone feel bad for not being at point B yet, 
and then try to say like, hey, I'll help your your weak self get across that that river. That's not going to work well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to boil it down, in one instance, you're insulting the person. In the other instance, you're right. saying, hey, you have a problem and I've got your solution. Is that? Yep. Okay. Right. I wanted to circle back um, to the idea of imposter syndrome because this place where you um, have gotten a lot of traction, I think it sounds like you're providing a lot of value, is is one that's heavily credentialized, right? So people mm-hmm. will go on, they'll get a master's or a PhD in this field of um, you know psychology, and you, you don't have that background, right? right. Um, but I think you, I, I, I would argue uh, that you're you're helping people today, and you know, mm-hmm. as someone who has a sister who's a PhD in the field, a lot of the issues that they deal with feel like they're in the abnormal psychology or sort of some fields where they the, the professional clinician brings a lot of value to the table in terms of treatment. Um, whereas I, I think that there's a lot of concepts from psychology that you can bring uh, without having necessarily all the credentialization um, and to help people. So I guess, how do you think about it? In fact, I think I even saw a tweet that you replied to something about pop psychology. So is, mm-hmm. is that something you consider? Is, is that something that you get pushed back on? How do you negotiate that in your head well a lot of the people that i would work with a lot of the potential prospects they don't care too much about credentials they care about results right so proven results from other people from the service like they they want to know that i really can help them do the things that i say and the best Mm -hmm. way to do that is with stories from other people that i've helped Yep. So that's, that's one answer to the question. Um, I certainly wouldn't say that the path that I've taken to get into the sphere is better. It's just different. Um, and I've been able to control the path that I've taken and like the stuff that I've learned. Um, obviously, I've had free reign to read whatever book or article or podcast that I want to instead of being kind of on rails as I would be in college. And I like that you brought up the abnormal psychology side of it because I've really been focused on what's called positive psychology, mm-hmm. which is whereas abnormal is more so how do we fix your problem? Positive psychology is how do we improve you, basically? How can we take you from neutral to positive in a way? It's oversimplification. That's something that I've really fixated on, but now that I've got a good base in that, I've started branching out into a little bit of the abnormal psychology and especially evolutionary psychology so that I can provide better help when needed. I certainly don't brand myself as a therapist. And if I've had a couple of times where somebody's came to me with some real deep, challenging problems and if I don't feel like I'm a good fit for somebody, then I'll certainly refer them to someone else. But I have gotten a little bit of pushback uh, as I've grown and as my tweets have reached um, certain other sides of Twitter. Um, psychologists with all their credentials and their name have certainly gotten a little bit defensive about some content that I've posted, calling it like pop psychology and saying like, well, this isn't technically correct. It's that's just kind of more tribalism. And another thing is we we as humans 
sometimes want to tear down people from outside of our tribe, right? So it's it's a positioning game, really, mm-hmm. um, both on a Twitter scale and also on a overall societal scale, where we want to position ourselves and our knowledge and our skills and our tribe as being superior to these other people. So there's there's been times where you know I've listed off some cool books that people can learn to get into psychology. And I remember one time some dude with some degree was like, oh, these are all pop psychology garbage. You need to re- read these real books. And it's like, well, somebody starting to learn psychology probably wouldn't have a good time reading the books that you recommended. But okay, man, like whatever. <laughs> I, I don't really engage. You do with people you. That, yeah, I, I don't. I, I don't engage like I don't I'm not insecure enough to argue with anybody like sure. I'll let it I'll let it slide the first couple of times somebody says something argumentative if they keep it up then I'll block them but I'm right. I don't see a point in arguing with anybody yeah I've, I have my way it's proven to be effective and other people have their ways yeah I've gotten interested into this idea interested in this idea of authority and trust the experts, uh, especially mm-hmm. over the last year, since it seems like it's come yeah. really, really into a, into our focus. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of what goes into that is it's, you can be an authority, but if you don't have any credibility, nobody's going to listen to you, right? So you have to have authority and credibility. And I think it's important to remember that you can build up credibility in different ways, so you don't have to have degrees. You can have a lot of experience, um, which is the right. way you're building up your credibility. And you can also have, you know, success stories and um, social proof. That sort of thing helps you build up your credibility. And one thing I've noticed is a lot of people that, you know, they're, they're wanting to hang their head. They're, they're wanting to hang their hats on this idea of research. And it's this idea of, uh, well, there's this one study that says this, so it must be true. So we have to do that. And they seem to miss the point that sometimes, you know, research is good, but it doesn't accurately reflect the real world um, because it can't take into account all of the different variables that are going into it. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm interested in economics and that's one of the things that I was taught even way back in you know the dark ages when i went to college yeah Yeah. was that you know a lot of what we know in economics tries to control and just test one thing but the real world there's hundreds of different things going on at the same time so the theories we have in economics aren't necessarily what you're going to always see carry over into the real world so sometimes i'm a little leery of the heavily credentialed experts who are relying on nothing but these studies um what do you think about that? Do you have you noticed any difference between the way some of these experts will talk and things they'll say versus the way um, people who are entering it from your direction will look at at this idea of psychology? There's a a lot to unpack there for sure. I could have an entire conversation <laughs> based just on that concept. Uh, I I feel like public perception or at least perception in our space on Twitter, which leans a certain way, as we all know, has definitely taken a blow over the past year. And unfortunately, that's seemed to affect all fields of science, um, where people just don't regard it as highly as they used to. But there certainly are people who read like one or two studies, and they think that, okay, this is proven. 
right? And I feel like that's the, the wrong way to go about it because just because one study said that this is the way this is doesn't necessarily mean that it is, you know? So that's why I've always been really careful to, you know, read studies and see what the research says, but not take that as gospel, right? Like, and that's the thing, that's, that's the problem with the statement like, oh, trust the science. Like just because science says that this is the way it is, doesn't 100% guarantee with absolute certainty that this is the way it is, right? Like even well-accepted, well-known, just things that we accept as truth in astrophysics and, you know, any other field, that doesn't mean that it won't be disproven tomorrow. Right. 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 And And of course there's things that we know with like certainty, like gravity, for example, but with, Unfortunately, the social sciences, including psychology, have a bit of a replicability crisis, which is very unfortunate considering that I love psychology, um, which is why I, another reason why I focus so heavily on neuroscience as well, because that's a bit more proven. But it, it really boils down to, you know, just because a couple studies have suggested this, it doesn't mean that it's proven. Like, it doesn't mean that this is something that you can build a prescription on, not like pills, but build like a strategy on and, and just assume that it's going to work for everyone. Like there, there's one study that was done a couple of years ago, I think that showed or suggested that a, a few minutes of negative news can cause an increased percentage or, or like increased risk of negative moods for hours. And I would love because I rail against the news all the time because it's so bad for us. But I would love to be able to talk about that more. But it's like one study. You know? Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's not something that I feel comfortable being prescriptive about. Like, it's a cool thing to say, like, oh, this may happen. But you can't take that as rock solid. Like, this is 100%. Like, if you watch the news for a couple of minutes, you're going to be pissed all day long. Because that's just not how it is. Right. Yeah. And it feels like it's a difference between developing useful heuristics for performance Mm -hmm. or life improvement versus um, developing iron laws and views of humanity, if you will. Right. Like this idea, like you can't extrapolate a study does says X. Well, then everyone, everyone who watches at least four minutes of news is now having negativity for the next four hours and therefore is doing X. But I could potentially say, listen, we see some evidence that negativity, either conversations that you have, this study talked about news, we're starting to see that if you have more positivity in your life, you, you can have the opposite effect. So things that you could do, is, is that kind of a way you would, you would look at that or are you thinking about it differently? Yeah, definitely. So the approach that I've learned to take over time is there are certain fundamentals that will help basically anybody. So that's things like structuring your day and sleeping better, having routines, you know, scheduling your time, drinking more water, eating better. You know, like obviously all of these things are going to help people is pretty well known. But then past the fundamentals, people are different. You know, we have little quirks like consciously, unconsciously. People are a little bit different. So it's important to go at it from a perspective of, okay, I'm going to learn about the person and suggest some things that might work that I think will work and then see how they go. And if they don't, well, why? Right. So Mm -hmm. 
with my coaching program, I typically work with people for um, a few months, like 90 days usually. And the first couple sessions are usually me, you know, talking to them, I guess, like actively coaching them or, or teaching them. Maybe that's the better way of putting it. And then after the couple weeks, the roles kind of reverse where I'm being very reactive. And so I'm like talking to them and hearing like, okay, how's the past couple of weeks gone? You know, where, where, are your, where are your trouble spots? Like, are you having trouble focusing? Are you having trouble managing all your projects? Are you overwhelmed? You know, what are, what are the things that are holding back your performance now, mentally and physically? And then I can work off of that and help them improve it. But if you go from a one size fits all approach the entire time, and I know that there are a couple of performance coaches who do that, that's just not going to work. And that really shows that you don't have a good understanding of how people work and how people just are in general. You know, there, there is no one size fits all approach to getting somebody to the top 1% in anything. Hmm. Not that I've found at least. Right. Well, I think that's the dangers of generalizing. Yeah. Um, again, some of these either studies or just even, you know, uh, Scott and I were talking about it offline. Just it's, we're, we live in a very interesting period where we, on one hand, have access to people communicating their thoughts on a real time basis and Twitter. And uh, you can read an athlete maybe post their performance schedule, how they exercise. And, and um, a VC may tell you about how they think about investing. And that's great. Uh, but then if you, if you extrapolate that or, or take that and frame that as, well, that's what I need to do exactly. Um, it, you can, you can wind up with a false impression of what's going to make you successful. Yeah, you know? for sure. And another big problem is people think that just because something worked for them or just because it worked for Elon Musk or Bezos or jobs or whomever, that it's going to work for everybody. So I keep seeing these lists, these articles about like threads to like the top five habits of billionaire. Do this and it'll make you rich. Like, not necessarily. <laughs> no. <laughs> like, the, yeah. the perfect example is like the 5 a.m. club, like this idea of like all rich people get up at 5 a.m. Yeah. I doubt that that's true. But also <laughs> as we understand our sleep chronotypes, which is basically like boiled down to morning larks and night owls mm -hmm. if you actually are a night owl which most people who think that they're night owls just stay up too late but if you actually are more energetic and productive and focused at night getting up at 5 a.m is going to be miserable like as far as we know see the language is important as far as we know you cannot force your sleep chronotype to change if you're a night owl you're a night owl you don't, it, you're not going to get anywhere. You're going to like screw up your life by trying to force yourself to get up early every morning. So it's, it, it's valuable for people to experiment with different things and see if they right. work for them, but also have the awareness and be able to say, okay, this didn't work. I'm going to try, I'm going to drop this and try something else. Is there a hypothesis for why these different chronotypes exist that you've come across? I just as an aside, it's interesting. Yeah, it definitely is interesting. I haven't seen anything like that, but it's a good question. It's something that I want to look up. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I think, um, I don't know, Joey, you may know, is it Sashin Panda is a researcher who is real big into the sleep chronotypes. chronotypes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, yeah. So you could probably, I know he's got a really good book um, that I haven't read yet, but I've, I've heard a lot of good things about it, kind of explaining this whole concept of, of sleep chronotypes. Um, and just right. everyone has a circadian rhythm throughout the day yep. and you, you maximize performance when you can stick with that rhythm. Mm. Yeah. And yep, speak, exactly. Speaking of maximizing performance, do you follow Stephen Kotler at all in the Flow Research Collective? Yep. Any of that? Yeah. Uh, what do One you, of my favorite authors. Okay. Yep. Yeah. I was going to ask you, what do you think of it? Um, it sounds like um, you find it compelling, this idea of being able to get into flow states um, for both physical and mental performance. Yeah. Flow state is really kind of the holy grail of optimal performance, really, because for those who don't know if they've experienced it, if you've ever been playing a video game or playing sports or reading a really good book and it feels like time, like you look up and two hours have passed, then you are pretty much in a flow state, which is maximum focus on that thing that you're working on. And that is just like one hour of focused work will get you so much further than eight hours of unfocused work. And unfortunately that's what most people have is just unfocused days where they don't really get a whole lot done. But if they can tap into this flow state, then they're just like people that I work with are just amazed at how much they can get done in a day because they're utilizing that flow state. I haven't really looked into the, the flow collective itself, but Kotler's books are very good. Yeah. In my opinion. Yeah. So, um, do you teach people how to get themselves into flow states? Yeah. So some starting points are reducing things that would prevent us from getting into it. So internal and external distractions. So internal distractions being, you know, being overwhelmed, having a lot on your mind, feeling anxious, and then external distractions would be a messy workspace a loud environment, too many tabs open, your phone, like (laughs) not silenced and in front of you. So if you start reducing these distractions, then that, that, that reduces the things that take you away from flow state or keep you from getting into it. That's the first step. Okay. Yeah. I was going to, along with that, you've, with your your uh, the people that you're you're coaching and uh, and just maybe people that have asked questions, sort of like, what are some of the assumptions or ideas that they they brought to the table that proved to be wrong at the end? Like maybe things that they thought, like you know, example could be, hey, I've got to get up at five o'clock every day, otherwise I'm not going to be you know peak performance, or you know I've got to have a certain diet. Like, do you see a pattern there of false ideas or bad ideas that? Um, kind of recurring? Yeah. Unfortunately, hustle culture has programmed, you know, business owners, certain business owners with um, false beliefs. So one is people thinking that they have to be grinding nonstop all day long. When in reality, you know, in, in my Twitter bio, I have a concept that Danco and I came up with, which is normalizing four hour workdays. You know, we believe that if you can do four hours of deep focused work on your own every day, then that's probably, I mean, that I wouldn't say good enough, but it's going to get you into the 1% of whatever you want to do. 
So hustling and grinding all day long is definitely one. There's another one that's like, oh, I don't, I don't need to sleep seven or eight hours. Like I'm good with five. I'll like, sleep hey. when I'm dead. Yeah. 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 Like, no, you, you probably aren't fine. Like that's the reason why your performance is low. And that's one of the reasons why we're talking. Sleep is <laughs> almost always the first thing that I work on with a new client because it's so vital that we get that rest that we relax and recharge. So that's another thing. Um, is, is that purely an American phenomena? No, not at all. So I have clients all around the world and it's something that's pretty, it shows up pretty often where people think that they can get away with sleeping very little. Usually really? those people are relying upon stimulants. So legal or illegal, um, up, uppers to wake up, downers to go to sleep. And it's just, yeah. So it's one of the things that we work on is getting away from that stuff. Yeah. So, so I, I th- let's be clear. I know you, uh, is it, is it an accurate statement to call you a coffee hater? Are you kind of the, the coffee <laughs> assassin? Are you going after all the, <laughs> the coffee makers out there? Uh, definitely. Um, been come across as kind of an anti-caffeine warrior at times. Um, it's, it's, I'm not against caffeine. I mean, that, that's coffee's what's in my water bottle, actually, full disclosure. But uh, that's the authenticity that we talk about here. We bring you nothing yep. but authentic truth <laughs> on this show, okay? Yep, exactly. I'm not a caffeine hater, but people are typically overusing it way too much. Hmm. That was a weird way to say that. People are overusing caffeine. Caffeine's a drug. It, it pure and simple. Caffeine is a drug. It's a psychoactive drug. It is the world's most popular drug. I think when I wrote the little little decaf book that I have, I found that something like eighty percent of Americans, and I guess you could extrapolate that to the world if you didn't care about accuracy, but something like eighty percent of Americans use caffeine every day, in some form, usually coffee, and that's fine. But a lot of people are using way too much. They're like, you know, one of my clients was going to Dunkin' Donuts every morning and getting a large cold brew, ice cold brew. And that's something like 350 milligrams of caffeine. A typical cup of coffee has estimated like 50 to 80 milligrams of caffeine, right? So having one or two cups of brewed coffee or tea or something like that is totally fine. But if you're using like hundreds of milligrams every single day, it's probably causing you anxiety. It's probably causing you insomnia because people also use it too late in the day too. And the caffeine, mm-hmm. the half-life of caffeine is like five to seven hours. So if you're having a cup of coffee at 4 p.m., you're probably not going to be able to sleep very well. And there are some people, I don't remember exactly why, but there are some people who can do that. Like they can drink a cup of coffee and go to bed. And be just fine because they're just yeah again people are different right yeah i am um, but overall to answer your question i don't have a problem with people using caffeine i have a problem with people overusing caffeine because again it causes anxiety insomnia it caused me acid reflux and or gerd um basically digestive issues which was causing me chest pain and chest tightness and it basically turned me into a bit of a hypochondriac about my heart because I was kind of unhealthy as well at the time, but my diet was okay. But I started worrying about my heart, and then I wound up having panic attacks because of this chest pain. 
And I eventually found out that the cause of it was caffeine because I was using so much caffeine that it was messing up my stomach and it was elevating my you know, cortisol and my just general anxiety. And so it was causing me real problems. So I don't tell people, hey, you got to completely cut out caffeine. I tell people, hey, it'd probably be a good idea if you use less of it. And then it's also a good idea to use something like theanine, which is a natural substance that's found in like tea and some mushrooms. But you can get theanine from like Amazon, like powdered theanine, and put it in your coffee like I do. And that, that greatly reduces the jittery, like stressful side effects of caffeine. Awesome. I've never tried that. I'll have to give that a go. Yep. It's awesome. It's, I, I got a little tub of uh, powdered theanine, so I shake it in my coffee every day. Yeah. And it, nice. I know a lot of the, the caffeine-based like focus supplements and workout supplements that are out there, they'll add, add theanine into the mix mm-hmm. um, just so you don't oh, get okay. that really jittery feeling. Um, yeah. So green tea has theanine in it naturally. So if you drink a cup of green tea versus a cup of coffee, like you're going to feel a lot smoother energy burst or energy from the, it's not really energy, but you're going to feel a smoother like boost from the tea as opposed to the coffee. Yeah. Got it. So, so if it's kind of recap here, we're saying a lot of people uh, think that they have to have hustle culture. So they're, they're not sleeping. Uh, They think that they, um, they also have to work all day. Right. So that's also, I guess, also kind of this thing that comes out of hustle culture, this idea that we, um, rather than, than concentrated, no distraction work, they're, they're, they're building it. Um, there's, they have to go, 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 go. And then, um, this sort of stimulant, um, they're relying on other substances to kind of offset these imbalances. Are those kind of like, like the general patterns that you're seeing? Yeah. There's, I would say the majority of people that I work with have, have one, at least one of those for sure. So, so how do you work with them to, you know, we talk about this idea of, um, you know, fragility and habits. And I think about habits and, and determination as kind of working together. Like you got to have the determination to build the habit. The habit then can become anti-fragile or in a lot of cases they feel like they are more fragile, right? Like some person makes all this great progress and then they just, they fall off a cliff and then everything just reverts back. I mean, it's, it's kind of as old as the, as, uh, you know, the stories that we have about humanity. So yep. are there, are there things that you've seen that you're trying to work with them, um, specific skills that they build or ways they frame or, or you know, mindsets? How, how do you kind of tackle that challenge? Well, I definitely am a, a mindset guru in some aspects, but you know, the, the platitude about mindset is everything kind of is true where if you have a negative mindset, if you have a fragile mindset and you think that you're a fragile person going into it, then you might not do too well. Like you, you're going to be creating a self-fulfilling prophecy where when you fail once then you fail for weeks or months or years, so the first thing I feel out is the person's belief about themselves, their mindset about themselves. And if I feel like they're kind of on the fragility side or, or if they're too rigid as well, that could be a problem. Then I help start them or help start helping them reprogram that. Because if we don't address that and you know at least make them aware of it, 
we don't address that, then our other efforts aren't going to be as fruitful, right? So that's something that has to be tackled early on. And again, a big part of that is helping somebody be aware because if you've just always been this way, you may not know that there's anything, hate to use the term wrong with that, but you may not think that there's anything limiting about the way that you're thinking, right? So giving somebody the awareness of, hey, I notice these patterns. I know, notice like the way that you talk about yourself or, you know, you, you said this on the, on the onboarding questionnaire. Have you considered this other perspective? And usually people are pretty receptive to that where it's like, oh, okay, I didn't think of it that way. You know, I'll try to keep that in mind. And then when I'm checking with, checking in on them in between calls, like if I happen to notice, you know, some negative self-talk or something like that, then I'll help them, you know, like, hey, no, like have this perspective instead. You know, it, it takes that consistent, um, the guidance and accountability and support at first because change is difficult. Our brain is wired to resist change, really. So it's very it's very critical to the the process to have that constant support rather than all right, cool, good talk. I'll talk to you next week and see how it goes. Yeah. So yeah. It, the the whole fragility, rigidity, and anti fragile. It's not necessarily thing terms that I've used. I've wrote a, a newsletter about it a while back, but it's not something that I'll you know, use those words with people. Calling somebody fragile on first call may not be a, a great way to go about things, <laughs> but I certainly make use of those concepts in my coaching. So, so you don't uh, use that drill sergeant tactic? <laughs> You're weak. No, I'm, I'm not that kind of person okay. and um, probably wouldn't be too effective. No. People pay money uh, to get on a call with me where I verbally abuse them. I mean, if somebody's into that, I don't. Right. <laughs> that's, what, right. that's what you need. You do you. Yeah. Yeah. Like if, if you want me, I, I've had a couple of clients where it's like, I need you to like, I don't know what kind of language I can use on this podcast, but you know, use strong language with them and give them some straight talk. And I'll do that if I have to, but I wait and feel people out yeah. and see what they need. That's, that's, that sounds like a sensible approach to me you know, just, r- yeah. rather than having one way, my way, the highway. And I'm going to, I'm going to pound you into oblivion if you don't listen. Um, yeah. Yeah, for sure. so so I wanted to ask Scott Scott has a question about uh, one of the more famous books that gets uh, talked a lot about on Twitter and uh, your yep. opinion Scott you want to kick that off uh, yeah so just uh, let us know what what do you think about how to win friends and influence people don't like it no <laughs> okay <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you want to leave it at that or you want to elaborate is, is, is that it yeah no no I, I can definitely elaborate so I've read the book twice and my perspective on the book is that it has some wisdom in it and I'm sure that it was, well, I know that it was very good at the time. Unfortunately, the book seemed to have become kind of like the Bible we'll say, and I'll come back to that metaphor. It kind of became the salesman's Bible. And I noticed when I read the book, um, the first time I was really surprised and I, I, I read it for the first time three years ago, right? So um, I'm 31, so I did not read it early on. I probably would have liked it a lot better if I had read it earlier in my life. But when I was reading through the book, I was feeling like this is what a used car salesman would do, right? This is what 
the the kind of slimy salesman people would do because I I'm guessing that a lot of salesmen because the book was so popular and so impactful on our culture that a lot of salesy type people use that book and so those some of those behaviors stood out to me as being things that like if you do this kind of stuff you're gonna come across as slimy to people right mm -hmm. like and so i think that it's a good introduction you know i was extremely homeschooled unofficially before college so i had like no social skills other than what i picked up in world of warcraft so it's like as a introductory like how to get along with people book you know it it's good but i don't think that somebody should take it as gospel like this is the way i should act in every social situation because if you mm. do then you're probably gonna set off some alarm bells in people's heads and they're not really gonna want to talk to you that much they're gonna suspect that you want something from them basically yeah i think um it, I read it for the first time, probably about the same time you read it, uh, three or four years ago. And then I've read it one time since as well. And it struck me as a lot of very basic information and information that I think you're right at the time was probably pretty revolutionary, but I think yeah. we've since moved past that and our values have also changed as a society so that it's, it's not quite as relevant. Um, but I do think it's got some good basic reminders in it. Um, but mm -hmm. I, yeah, I agree with you. I think if you wanted to go beyond it, or I think you'd need to go beyond what's in there and learn some of the more, more recent, go, go for more, some of the more recent writings on the subject. Well, what, yeah. what would you guys recommend as a, a more recent writing? That's, uh, the next stage in the evolution of this sort of social skills and learning. One for me would be influenced by Robert Cialdini. That's, probably my favorite communication book not that i've read too many but that's an extremely good book for modern communication and like i guess communication for like our generations mm -hmm. it's good for that and good for you know sales and marketing and like just communicating with people in general it, so the, the key is when you're talking about influence it doesn't necessarily mean you're manipulating people, right? So yeah, that's a, that's a big distinction, isn't it? Yeah, the, the, the distinction basically basically is like, are you trying to influence somebody to do something that's harmful to them? Like, are you trying to sell them a car that you know is going to break down like right after right after they leave the lot? Trying to sell them a product or service that they don't need, like that's predatory, that's manipulative. But if I'm selling a coaching service. And I'm on a, on a call with somebody and I'm, I've diagnosed their problems and I'm like, yeah, I can really help this person. Then it's good to be able to influence them a bit and help them help them feel good about the decision. Right. So influence is great. And it's I think it would be good for people to think about communication from a sales perspective. Like it, even when there's no money changing hands, because if you think about it, a lot of things are sales, right? Like you're selling your ideas. Like I'm selling my ideas and concepts to my community on Twitter. You're selling, um, for those of you who are married, I'm a single cat dad, but for those, for those of us who are married, you know, you may be selling the idea of going someplace for dinner or going someplace on vacation or trying to get a date with somebody. You know, so you're pretty much always selling 
to some degree because you're trying to influence somebody to do something that you want to do or do something that's good for them. Yeah. So it's almost so, like selling is a subset of actual just negotiation, which we're doing on a, on a, uh, on a consistent basis. Yep, exactly. It's kind of like yeah. communication with more of a point, I guess hmm. that might not be the right way to go about it, but it sounded better in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. Um, Actually, while we're on the topic of communication, one of the things we try and talk about in this show is it's a lot about mental models, right? So we talk about these mm-hmm. concepts and trying to apply them to conversations and, and where we're seeing patterns and where we're seeing um, difficulty or, or lack of clarity, trying to use these models to apply it. Part of it is is an idea that right now uh, in our society, we struggle with that, right? And and it, you could oversimplify and just say it's politics. I think there's there's other root causes that, that challenge it. And part of it is how we, we uh, work within our digital and our physical self, right? And the, the personas that we have in these different spaces and how we're renegotiating all that in real time, generational changes. From your perspective, just on a purely, you know, who you have friends with and uh, your family, does that resonate with you? Does that sound foreign or alien? Does that sound accurate? Do you, do you feel like there's a, there's a difficulty that people have communicating their thoughts and ideas? Yeah, I think that there, there definitely is. Part of that is due to social media. I think that social media is in some ways one of the worst things that humanity's ever done to itself. Um, but it's been good in other ways. I mean, I built my business on social media, of course, yeah. but social media has caused our attention spans to drop. And so ways of communicating that would have been effective before aren't as effective now because if you put something out into the world and it doesn't grab people immediately, unless they're invested in you, they're not going to take the time to invest in whatever it is that you're saying. So that's changed the way that we've communicated for some of us where we feel like we need to be more say polarizing and piss people off with our messaging um, just to get Mm -hmm. their attention. And we need to be intentionally be kind of unusual to stand out. You know, I I posted a thing yesterday about um, the Von Reisdorf effect where things that stand out are better recalled, which explains why some celebrities do things that are really weird, like Lady Gaga and people like that. So it's social media has definitely changed our approach to communication. And that doesn't really, some of those changes don't line up well with authentic communication, right? So I have a problem with the people who are just polarizing for the sake of being polarizing because they're not really being authentic. They're just pissing people off as a marketing strategy. Just pure trolling. Yeah, it's trolling, it's positioning to make themselves look and feel better. And it's just very authentic, but some people who would just say like, well, that's the game. That's, that's what you do nowadays. Like it's, mm. it is what it is. And I, I don't like that myself, but it, I don't know. All I can really do is do things the way I feel is right. I guess. Yeah. On a, on a interpersonal level, and maybe with your friends or family, do you see tactics that um, can help improve that? Like you mentioned this idea of, um, everyone having short attention spans. Uh, I think I saw where it's under where our attention spans are worse than goldfish. Now uh, it's like under, yeah. under eight seconds, under five seconds. So 
Um, do you see specific tactics that you're seeing deployed that you recommend or things that you use to try when you want to communicate something that's complex to, to people? One tactic is understand it as best you can yourself mm. and boil it down to the simplest way it can possibly be. So I think there's, you know, coming from an engineering background and now being into science, I see all the time people that use complex jargon and technical terms that they don't, they don't need to be. And instead of making you look smart, at best it makes the audience feel stupid. And at worst, it actually makes you look stupid because you can't explain this in a way that people can understand. So first, you know, understanding your own, understanding the concepts that you want to explain as best you can so you can explain them as simply as you can. That's the first. Second is understanding what skill level or knowledge level your audience has say if I'm talking to a one-on-one client, like understanding like, oh, okay, you, like you've, you've read some books before, so you've heard of those concepts. Okay, I can go a bit you know, more technical with it. Or I've literally never seen a brain before in my life. Okay, then I'll you know, go to the basics. That's important. And then in general, listening. Like actually listening to people when you're communicating with them. It's it's just seems to be kind of a lost art because and partially because our society and our brains are moving so fast, we are already problem solving in our head, like while we're listening. And we're already thinking about the next thing that we want to say while we're listening. And so we don't really get the full the full statement from the other person. And it's like if you don't have all of the statement, how can you possibly come up with an accurate response you know you're kind of short-circuiting the process so the better that you listen the better you're going to be able to help that person or communicate with them and so everybody wins really right yeah i think those are some uh, really good behaviors that uh you know scaled out <laughs> more you know higher adoption rates would, would really help uh everybody with uh their communication scott any other questions or thoughts from you because we're, we're coming up on the hour so i just want to be sensitive to the time um i definitely have more questions but yeah you're, we're a little bit over an hour now so um yeah joey you got anything you want to pitch uh website any products anything like that sure so i like i said i'm a performance coach for business owners and other people who want to improve their performance but i typically have a couple openings. I have a couple openings coming up soon, but you can find me on Twitter and I'm just twitter.com slash cypreneur. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Or you could email me at joey at cypreneur.com. But if you have any questions about anything I said here, you want to tell me that I'm stupid, you know, whatever <laughs> you want to practice communicating with me. Um, my DMs are open. So always down to talk to people. Okay. Yeah. And we'll uh, post links to that, uh, to yeah. your uh, Twitter information in the show notes. Awesome. And, and go out there before his rates go up. Cause he, uh, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen the next six months. We're all reading about inflation and, and, uh, his business is not immune. So go out there and sign up today. Um, Joey, it was an absolute pleasure, man. It's been a while since we connected. It was really, really great to hear about all the work that you're doing. I think, um, the stuff you're doing is helping a lot of people, which is, uh, you know, we, we 
we tend to read, as you said, we read a lot of bad news. We, we get a lot of negativity. It's great to hear some positivity. So I appreciate you bringing that. Um, so thank you. Hopefully, uh, before your, your star gets too bright, you'll be willing to come back <laughs> for another round at some point and, and chat with us again. Yeah, for sure. Like I said, thank you for having me. Some great questions today, for sure. Questions I've never been asked before, which is always good. And um, yeah, I was just thinking a minute ago that we definitely need to do this again because there's certainly a lot more paths that we can go down. Absolutely. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. All right. Well, well, thanks. And thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Uh, wherever you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on, on Stitcher, or on mentallyinscripted.com, um, let us know your comments. Leave a comment. Uh, give us your ideas. Let us know what we missed. And until next time, take care. Take care.